Again, good afternoon. If you got your Bibles, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We've actually got just 10 verses today, which is a little less than we've been doing recently. Um, we're going to unpack them in just three distinct little sections. And uh, really the overall theme is, is that working and, and, and moving through life alone is a terrible way to live. Uh, and so we ought to, to look for others to work and cooperate with. And really, this is particularly important for us as we live in this culture that uh, although we speak about community and cooperation as though it's a valuable thing, we often see in practice that individualism is highly sought after or or respected. I think the truth is we're we're often more impressed with superstars in sports than we are a well-executed teamwork. Uh, Even in the church, I think we're often uh, more impressed with celebrity pastors than we are faithful congregations in cities. And so just to, to lay all my cards on the table this morning, my hope and my goal in, in preaching this sermon today is to be faithful to the text, which leads us to, to better identify individualism and wrong value systems in our lives, and that we might respond by pursuing relationships and community and, and collaboration wherever appropriate, and to do so because God's Word says that's a better way to live this life under the sun. So let's read the whole passage and and then we'll dig into it. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're starting in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, you have made us, and so you know what we need more than we know what we need. Give us not only understanding of your word today, but work it into our hearts that it might be made true of our lives. Give us relationships with others that are built upon your word and which seek to show the love and the grace we have been shown in the gospel. As we continue through this book, help us to learn and to live a life of true meaning and value, not just as we look to the future, but as we live today. Amen. Are you familiar with this term, miser? It's not one we use in our vocabulary very often. Uh, The term refers to someone who is very cheap, someone who is pinches pennies, who hoards his or her money, typically someone who allows others to suffer in their own pursuit of great wealth. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Story, 
gives a classic example of a miser and, and Ebenezer Scrooge, kind of the idea of it. Scrooge lives to pursue money, and so much so that he has no compassion on his employees, he has very little relationship with his family, and he finds himself very, very lonely as he just goes about collecting more and more money. Simply put, he's selfish and lonely. And as we think about it, it's easy to think, well, that's, that's just a story, something that Charles Dickens made up. Uh, what's surprising, though, is, is how many real-life misers there are, uh, that there have been. Uh, one of the most interesting misers I've learned about was a Canadian man, a Canadian lawyer, actually, named Charles Millar. And Charles Millar spent his life buying and, and selling property and, and suing people when necessary to collect more money. And when he passed away on October 31st, uh, 1926, he left this incredible amount of money behind him. And when they got to his last will and testament, uh, they found this was one of the strangest things they'd ever, ever opened. He left to 260 Protestant pastors, guys who opposed alcohol, he left them stock in the O'Kefe Brewing Company. It gets weirder. He left a vacation home in Jamaica to three men who he knew despised each other with the condition that they could go there so long as they all went there together. He also left 25000 worth of stock in a jockey club uh, to two men who had spent their lives fighting against him on this uh, in regards to the gambling involved with it. And it was all on the condition that they actually enrolled as shareholders uh, in this company. And the last item in his will uh, really was all the rest of his money, all the rest of it. He left to the woman who gave birth to the most children in Toronto by the 10th anniversary after his death. This is what he left. Uh, and, and so the newspapers quickly called it the Stork Derby. And it became this big thing in Toronto. They kept standings on, on different women who were involved in this contest. And they, they had people gambling on the front runners and it became this, this big thing in Toronto. And so on the 10th anniversary of his death, four women ended up tying for first, having birthed nine children in that time period. They were each awarded 8.5, or what would be the equivalent to 8.5 million dollars for this. And, it, and you hear that and you think, well, that's insane and that's crazy. And, and, and this is true, but it's also this incredibly sad story when you realize why this was the way he left everything. Uh, when they got to his last will and, and testament, they opened it, and, and this is what they were greeted with, is this following statement. He said, this will is necessarily uncommon and capricious because... I have no dependents or near relations, and no duty rests upon me to leave any property at my death. And what I do leave is proof of my folly in gathering and retaining more than I required in my lifetime. Basically, he's saying the amount of, of money I am leaving and the way that I'm doing it is proof that I spent my life gathering money rather than building relationships. He had no wife, he had no children, no close friends, no one to leave it to. And we read this, and you hear this, and you think, well, that's an extreme example, but uh, it's a real-life example of what we're seeing in our passage today. Uh, listen as I read again, just verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. As we look at this, the numbers are actually a very important part of this passage. You'll notice this, this word one right off the bat. One person who stands alone. 
he has no second. He has no sons. He has no brothers. Uh, and it lists those things. Those, those are the two closest male relationships across two generations right there. And, and it's clear that this man's life consists only of work. And while his wealth grows, we, we read that his eyes are never satisfied with riches. See, he's always wanting more. He's looking for some sort of satisfaction and never finding it. Uh, because he's running a race with, with no end, he doesn't even take time to ask this question, to consider why am I even running this race to begin with? What we do know about him, though, is that wealth is of great importance to him. Really, he's, he's not unlike the rich young ruler who speaks to Jesus in Matthew 19. He comes to him seeking eternal life, or how may I have eternal life? And when the man states that he's obeyed all the laws and lists out everything he does, Jesus responds to him by saying, if, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And then the author, Matthew, tells us, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, Jesus' point was that this man loved his money more than he loved God, more than he loved other people. And what we see in our text is, while money, again, is not evil, we have to be careful not to, to give that impression. It cannot satisfy us. It's incapable of doing that. This person is, is caught in this addictive lifestyle, this addictive cycle. Uh, there's no end to his toil. So much so that he never even asked that question. Uh, you know, the question, what, what's the point of my work? Why am I even doing this? I think he words it, uh, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? You see, if he asked that question, he'd learn the answer is no one. Because he has no one. It seems he doesn't even have time to rest, time to even consider this, or time to enjoy even the perks of having all that money to begin with. Now, it's, it's easy to say, I think, as we sit here to think, well, well I'm not a miser. And I think that's fair. None of us in this room are probably misers, at least not on the epic scale that we just learned about. You know, none of us are, are at the point where we're leaving money to, to pets or anything crazy like that. But really, each of us is tempted in some regard to, to live this way. You know, when a child ruins something expensive of yours by accident, our, our real heart comes out in this. Our real values are, are put on display. You know, will you, will you respond in a way that values your relationship with that child or, or in a way that shows them that really this, this item is of great importance to me, more importance? You know, how loosely do we hold on to our own money? Will we spend it on another person or is our money strictly for ourselves? See, his point is that we ought to, to spend less effort on collecting wealth and more effort on, on building these relationships with, with people that God's placed in our life. And we're going to see that a little more a little bit later. I want us to look at the next portion, verses 9 through 12. Uh, these are very well known. I'll read them again just to make them familiar. Uh, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, who will withstand him? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so last week, uh, we saw when it comes to riches that more is not better. And this week, we're seeing when it comes to relationships, more is better. See, his premise is that uh, two people working together is better than one per person working alone. It's pretty obvious, right? 
And then he gives these four explanations, these four reasons why working together is better. And his first one is in verse 9, because they have a good reward for their toil. His point is that what two people can accomplish together is significantly more than what one person can accomplish alone. Uh, Not long ago, Richard helped me turn a sunroom into a a bedroom. I couldn't have done any of that without him. But again, near the end of that project, uh, it was time to put up siding on the outside of the house, and, and I decided to go out there and do it by myself at first. It was very slow. I was stacking up wood, trying to get the right height on one end of the board, and I'd run to the other side, and it would fall. Uh, not very much was done when I was doing it alone. And then Chris came over, and we began to work on this together. Working together, we accomplished much more than two people working alone would have accomplished. In fact, what would have taken me a few weeks to accomplish, we did in one single afternoon. That's kind of his point. It seems so simple. So that's the, the first example, that working together is more productive. So yeah, let's do that. The next three examples are from traveling in the Middle East. Uh, In this time period, it was not as easy as traveling as we do today. In verse 10 he writes, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Uh, When they traveled, they would often do this at night. They would travel through uh, not paved areas like we have, but through trails. And it was dangerous, particularly at night when it got dark and there were no lights, no flashlights, uh, no lampposts. They didn't even have... Uh, Google Maps to kind of, you know, guide them through the deserts or wherever they were. And, and, and then as a result, it, it was not unheard of for people to fall into pits or down, down cliffs. Uh, even in the book of Genesis, it, it speaks of these various references to these, these bitumen pits. You ever read that and think, what is that, and then never come back to figure it out? Uh, well, there are these pits that are full of this naturally occurring asphalt-like substance. They put it in boats, basically helped keep water out. Uh, and they were great for that. They were very bad if you fell into them, though. So you get this picture of two men traveling together, one falls in, and to get out, he is desperate for the assistance of another person. We don't fall in pits very often. We don't think about that. I hope we don't. The third example is in verse 11. It says, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Again, traveling. When they did stop at night, it was without shelter. They didn't travel with a bunch of clothing because it was hot to move. So they wouldn't bring blankets or anything with them. And so uh, the way they would keep warm is simply to cuddle together. Yes, most of us would be very uncomfortable with this. It's a lot like the phrase, a three-dog night. You've probably heard of that before. I think there was a band at one point named that. It really it comes from this idea that uh, when it was cold, Native Australians uh, would dig a hole in the ground, and then they'd get in the hole, and they'd get a, a dingo or a dog with them. And that would be how they kept warm. Uh, and if it got really cold, they'd get two dingoes with them, and they, they get into that hole. And, and then when it became freezing outside, that's when they get three dingoes, three dogs, and, and would cuddle with these dogs. I can't imagine it was good, but it was warm. <laughs> and so his point is when we're traveling with others, that uh, actually provided warmth and the cold. I, I mean, again, very, very simple. Uh, the fourth reason working with someone is better than being, doing so alone is, is seen in verse 12. first portion says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. It's like the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember in Luke 10.30, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Uh, That man was was traveling alone, and you can see exactly how it turned out for him. Uh, It's not unlike today. Uh, When you travel across campus, you're encouraged to go in pairs at night. It's not safe to do otherwise. Uh, You've probably been told if you go jogging on a path, unless you're as big as David or someone, to take someone with you. 
Uh, at the end of, of the day, uh, employees are often walked out of their cars. There is this safety that we find in numbers wherever we might go. And, and, and that's the point of this, this last portion, verse 12. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Uh, this is a, a picture, a word picture that we can understand even here nearly 3,000 years later. Uh, it's the idea that while one cord is, is quite weak, two is stronger. And if you take three and actually unite them together, it is even more so. It's kind of along the lines of how you can take a single piece of paper and rip it in half. So if I hand you a phone book, it's not happening. Very difficult. Uh, throughout history, this, this simple text here, this threefold cord, has been really overcomplicated. And, and so it's, it's worth saying that this threefold cord is, is not the Trinity. That's not what it's referring to, though the Trinity is certainly a great example of it. It's also not a husband, a, a wife, and God. You've probably seen the image, right? Someone's drawn for you at some point, and it's great. Uh, but that's not what it's referring to here. Uh, it's not a husband, a wife, and their first child. It's, it's just this simple wisdom that people united together uh, bring comfort and, and strength that we do not have alone. Uh, and, and really, it's not setting up three as this perfect number either. It's the idea that, that even more is better. Uh, the more strands, the more strength, is, as long as they are united together, uh, that's where you find this strength. Really, that's an ideal picture of the church. Uh, and unfortunately, if we're honest, we look at the church today, the universal church across uh, the globe, uh, a great deal of our disunity is what's led to, to weakness in the church. So an example in our text, though, deals with, with traveling, and, and, and it certainly applies to traveling, but it goes way beyond that. See, we, we humans, we're not created to be alone. I mean, do you really understand that? I think we, we, we understand that on some level, but we really were not created to be alone. When, when Adam and all the animals have been created, God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And, and particularly there, God is talking about creating Eve, his wife. And while this is certainly true of marriage, our text today is actually given in the context of non-romantic relationships. You remember back in verse 8, the relationships that are shown to be missing, that are the particular ones, are son and brother. These are non-romantic relationships. And so while the, the marriage in Song of Solomon, or maybe in your life, is an appropriate example of this, so is Ruth and Naomi, which is odd because that's where this famous verse comes from. You know, I, the vow, I will go where you go. It's read in almost every wedding that's ever been, every Christian wedding that's ever existed on the whole planet. And, and yet that vow was not made from one spouse to another spouse. It was made from a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. See, we see the value of close relationships as we view the lives of David and Jonathan, two men who uh, were wonderful friends together and strength and comfort to each other, defending each other. We also see it in the disciples working together for the kingdom of God. Uh, all this, despite their lives, their personalities being across the whole Meyer-Briggs spectrum uh, or whatever personality tests that they pigeonholed themselves into back in the first century, we see it in business partners, business partners who actually work together, uh, that are complement each other. And the truth is, I know very little about basketball, and I'm totally okay with that. Uh, but I know that last year's NBA Finals, the, the San Antonio Spurs, who are known to be a team that works together in unity, destroyed a team, the Miami Heat, who were known to have three superstars who did not work together. Uh, when we learn about the early church in Acts 2, we learn about how much time they spent together and how they shared just about everything they had with each other. I see the church and, and scripture is also referred constantly to as the body of Christ. The body of Christ. You get that unity working together. 
you know, building each other up. At no point in your life are you ever afraid your hand's going to attack you. I hope. That's that idea of unity, working together for a common purpose, for the common good of each other. Uh, and we might think in ministry that, you know, to send out individuals to as many places as possible is the most effective plan. And, and yet, listen to how Jesus sends out his disciples in Mark 6-7. He says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. Two by two. So ask yourself today, do I tend to work alone? Am I prideful about getting credit for myself? How am I seeking to work with others? Uh, not only are you willing to help others, but, but really what's, what's more difficult, listen to this, hear this, am I willing to let others help me? I think that's the downside to living in an individualistic culture. We want to do everything ourselves. Let's consider these last four verses, starting in verse 13. It says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's palace. There was no end of all the people, all of, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This begins by essentially telling the story that we see in Proverbs 12, 15, which, which says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. See, this, this story, though, is even more extreme because it's speaking about the, the elderly, uh, an older man, uh, someone who in, in Israel was considered to be very wise. That was the ex expectation with age. And, uh, you know, Job 12.12 tells us wisdom is with the age and understanding in length of days. And yet here we have a man in a position of power with years of experience who's said to be an unwise fool. See, remember in, in verses 7 and 8 at the very beginning, we spoke about a man who, who works for wealth and he was utterly alone. This king also is seen to be alone, disconnected from others. He'll no longer take advice from others. See, men and, and women who will not take advice from wise counsel or from God's word are, are destined to make poor decisions. And that's part of living in community. That's the wisdom of someone outside of your head. So it's the wisdom of, of someone's experience. And, and they're applying scripture into your life for you, with you. Learning from someone who's done it before. And this also just shows the way we need community. In fact, tomorrow night over at the Arnett's house, kind of a plug, but it fits in completely perfect. Sarah Arnett's actually leading this, the living room sessions for, for women on parenting. And, and really, it's a kind of group mentoring sort of gathering where this wisdom will be shared from scripture and applied uh, to actual life because Sarah is the absolute perfect parent who's ever, just kidding. That's the last thing you want to hear, right? That you're full of wisdom, come listen to me. But it's that experience of actually having done this, of having gone before, and there's wisdom to be gained from that. That's exactly why something like that is, is such a blessing to us. But, you know, seeking wisdom of others is, is vital for our lives. See, some of the worst decisions made in life or when we have isolated ourselves from our church community and from our family and from our friends and so many people that we know love God and care for us. We need others in our lives. Verse 14 is talking about this poor and wise youth. 
Uh, it gets a little confusing the way it's worded, but it's talking about this poor and wise youth. Uh, he goes from jail uh, to a place of power because of his wisdom. And it certainly reminds us of, of, of Joseph. In and, and Genesis 37, if you remember, he goes from being in jail to being of high status in Egypt. Genesis 41, 41 says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Begin to see these things happening. Verse 16 speaks of leaders. People will praise leaders and, and soon after detest those same leaders. You don't have to live very long before you've seen that actually happen. You might remember how pleased people were when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, going out in the streets. Uh, actually, John 12, 13 tells us they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's a little surprising then that just a few days later in the very same town, we read in John 19, 15, they, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall we crucify your king? And the chief priest answered him, we have no king but Caesar. How quickly it can change. Life at the top is fleeting. Presidents might have extremely high approval ratings one day and not long after it has absolutely plummeted. These things don't last. These sections, all three of these sections, really are, are, make up this whole passage that's about relationships. Simply put, we need them. We really, really need them. And that's even at the heart of the two great commandments that, that Jesus gives us. See, we are to relate to God in love, and we are to relate to people in love. And this is where the gospel comes in. When, when Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished salvation for the church, for all who would look to Jesus through faith for the forgiveness of sin. And when God saves us, he creates a relationship between God and his people. We become adopted children of God, actual children of God. And that means that, that we have these brothers and sisters in Christ all around us. And that means that we will not dwell alone in eternity. But more importantly, and more to the point of this passage in Ecclesiastes, it also speaks of our not walking through this life under the sun alone. So we would be wise to listen to this advice, uh, to seek ways to work together within this covenant community, as well as with others outside of Manhattan Presbyterian, as we seek for this big kingdom vision uh, for serving the community and for the proclamation of the gospel to as many people as God gives us opportunity to. And so here it is. Don't, don't spend your days collecting money. Rather, seek to work with people and build relationships that are genuine and God-honoring. Uh, look to work with others and, and invite others to work with you. And I think that's going to be the difficult part. We have a lot of people who are willing to serve and help and want to. Um, but most of us think, I can help someone, but I don't need help. And the, and the difficulty is going to be to say, come help me. We can do this better together. Let's do this together. Also, don't neglect the first and the foremost important relationship we have is that relationship we have with our God, the, the very God who loves us so much that he, he made us his very children, an incredibly close relationship, and he did so at great cost to himself. Let's pray. God, thank you for the people in our lives. Thank you for making us to need others. As we soak in your word today, help us to, to seek out others to work with, to serve with, to laugh with, and to proclaim your gospel alongside. 
Give us patience when working together is difficult and give us a willingness to be corrected and to hear advice, not thinking ourselves to be islands in and of ourselves. May you be glorified in our dependence upon each other and our greater dependence upon you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.